0: From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt. Although lately, some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. Well, it's true. I've never owned a restaurant, never even worked in a restaurant. I like eating in them. I do have some history in the food industry, however. When I was a senior in high school, I worked in our local supermarket. But more than that, I worked behind the deli counter. It's a pretty high-profile job, to be honest. All the cool kids were doing it. I mean, I got to wear that Kohler meat hat and uh, sort of a apron with suspenders. It was really pretty cool. Definitely the... The women in the town were digging me at that point. I do think maybe that experience played some role in me getting interested in a career in surgery. I mean, for instance, I did learn how to cut locks. Now, a lot of you out there might not know much about locks. Kind of a weird fish, I guess. I don't think it's an actual kind of fish, locks, but it's pretty challenging to cut. If you can picture it, you put out your whole arm and you lay the entire fish on your arm. Then you take a long, thin, sharp knife and you basically run it up your arm or down your arm, cutting off a thin slice. I was actually pretty good at it. I'll never forget the time one of my colleagues was cutting a piece and he somehow got the edge of the knife under a flap of his skin in his hand. It was pretty surprising when blood came squirting out. It didn't gross me out, though. So maybe that pretended for a future career in surgery. I had a few funny stories, though, back from my time then that for some reason still stick with me. Uh, One in particular was kind of interesting. We were pretty busy, actually, during the lunch hour and really throughout the day. People would come in and they'd want sandwiches. They want different cuts of meat. And it was really fun to try and get good at cutting thin slices, at getting the weights exactly right. I actually really enjoyed that. But this one time I was standing there in my Kohler hat and my bib and apron, and in walked the president of my Jewish center. I'll just call him Mr. Citron, mostly because that's what his name was. And I didn't know him that well, but I certainly knew him. He walked up to the counter. I even said to them, hi, Mr. Citron. He looked at me and kind of looked quizzical, didn't really respond. I suspect most of us wouldn't expect to see someone we know behind the counter of our supermarket uh, deli counter. And he looked straight at me and said, give me a pound of Virginia baked ham. I said, no, Mr. Citron, you can't have that. He kind of raised his eyebrows and I said, oh, never mind and went ahead and cut it for him. I thought that was pretty funny. A few other funny things, uh, like we didn't know that much about the meats we had behind the counter. Like, for instance, we had Italian roast beef and regular roast beef. And when we would run out, we'd open a new big old piece of beef and place it back there. The truth is, I couldn't tell the difference between the two. And we often mix them up or switch them back and forth almost for fun. The funny thing is, they cost a different amount. I think the Italian roast beef was a dollar or two more per pound. Customers would often come to us and say, So, what's the difference between the two? And we would come up with all kinds of crazy stories. Like, for instance, I remember telling one customer, Well, the Italian roast beef is really special. The cows are brought up on Italian grains. And uh, for the most part, they're on the fields out in Trieste. Uh, All these crazy stories. And people always bought it, which I thought was hilarious. So I guess in general, you should get just the cheapest one. Well, one time they had me cover bakery. I thought that was kind of a step up because I could stand behind and look at all the cakes, maybe smell the delicious cakes as they came out of the oven. We would bake our own. Um, But I also didn't know what the hell was behind the counter there. So this one time this woman came up and she was buying a cake for her daughter's birthday. And she was looking at all the different cakes there. You know, We had the standard vanilla cakes and chocolate cakes and lots of different kinds. She pointed out to one and said, what's this one? I looked at it. It was a white vanilla cake. But I also noticed that there seemed to be a rim of uh, what looked like green icing. I told her this is our very special lime cake. It's been very popular. She said, is it good? I said, oh, it's delicious. It has this hint of lime but really tastes like a vanilla cake. She was really excited and she went ahead and bought that. I noticed there were no more Uh, back there in the bakery of that brand so I went out to the back to the bakers and I said hey we need another vanilla lime cake they were like we don't make a vanilla lime cake after a little, little digging around we found out it was actually mold I hope they didn't eat it well I guess that's how they discovered penicillin I had a few shifts where they moved me over to seafood that I really did not like I mean first of all I'm not in love with the smell of seafood although when it's fresh I suppose it's good But the other thing is, we had a lobster tank, and I would be standing there, and people would come, and there'd be all these lobsters, and they would always say, pick me out that bottom one there, and I'd have to reach in and push all the other lobsters out of the way. That scared the hell out of me. I mean, yeah, they had those little things holding their claws closed, but who knew if they could bite me or not? Well, that was, in general, a good experience working there, but it didn't end up being a full career for me. In future years, I continued to work in the food industry. Like for instance, I did some delivery for a pizza shop when I was in college. I was not very good at that. It may not surprise you to know, but I generally like to talk to people, usually to try and make them laugh. And I remember my first night of delivery, I was delivering through the campus. First of all, I was really slow because I get lost everywhere. I have no sense of direction whatsoever. In fact, I get lost in my own hospital. I never get lost inside the abdomen, though, as far as you know. But nevertheless, I got lost a lot. I would show up late to bring people's deliveries. And then if I knew them a little bit, I'd start talking to them. And i get later and later and later. And I remember by the end, the last two deliveries I had, the people no longer wanted them. I actually returned to the store, and they made me take money out of my money, out of my, uh, we called it a Mac machine, my money account, to pay them for the food that I didn't deliver. I'm actually the one guy in the world who did a delivery job and actually had to get money out of the bank to pay for my work. It was funny though, when I got back home to my dorm, I had so much extra food with me that I never delivered that my roommates were pretty happy. They didn't pay me anything for it though. I was super excited when I read Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. I really didn't know much about Anthony Bourdain. I had seen him on TV here and there, but didn't really know what he was all about. Then after he killed himself, I wanted to understand that better. It seemed like the guy had the most incredible life ever. I mean, you got to fly around the world to exotic places. You got to eat crazy foods. Uh, It just seemed like the perfect life. So I really wanted to dig into him a little more, and I read his book. For anyone out there who hasn't read Kitchen Confidential, it's truly wonderful. But it also gives you a lot of secrets about the food industry, secrets about what to order, what not to order. Never ask for well done meat, you don't know what you're gonna get. Be careful with the Bernays sauce. Be careful ordering the seafood salad on a Monday when the special on Friday included seafood. I better not tell you any more, but I highly recommend that book. That's why when we started this podcast, I knew I was gonna wanna interview somebody in the restaurant industry. This week's episode is on one of my favorite topics, food. I have always liked to eat, but as I have gotten older, I have found that going out to restaurants has become a central part of my social life, well, at least before COVID. I always thought it would be fun to own a successful, bustling restaurant, to be able to walk around to all the tables and greet everyone who was having a good time, kind of like the big dog. Maybe I would be like Guy Fieri or Bobby Flay. Hey, maybe I'd even have my own television show. Of course, the biggest problem in that fantasy is the only food I can cook is grilled cheese. My favorite sauce is ketchup, and I know nothing about the restaurant business. Some years back, I read the Anthony Bourdain book, Kitchen Confidential, and I got a better sense of how difficult it might be to get through even one night cooking for or running a restaurant, much less actually being successful. To be honest, the chaos and problem solving did remind me a bit of my own business of surgery although I think the cast of characters is a bit different. Our guest for today's show is John Gato, who is both a chef and co-owner of three amazing restaurants here in Madison, Wisconsin, Gates and Brovy, Marigold's Kitchen, and my absolute favorite restaurant in the world, Sardine. John's going to tell us what it is really like to be a chef, to run a restaurant, and deal with annoying customers like me. John, welcome to the set. Thanks for having me, Josh. I, I'll tell you, when I took over this podcast, you were one of the first people I thought about because I'm so fascinated by your business. But I thought maybe we could start by just talking a little bit about where you grew up and, and how you got exposed to both cooking and the
1: restaurant business. Well, I grew up in Evanston, which is just a, a north, northern suburb of Chicago. My family was always into cooking, uh, my dad especially. He's actually, he's the Gates part of Gates and Brovy He was a professor and uh, my mom was a teacher. And you know, we had a, we lived in a kind of a humble little house in Evanston and uh, went to Evanston High School. And when I was a kid, my dad was a professor at uh, UIC in Chicago. Uh, in the architecture department. He managed the overseas program in Paris. Uh, It was an exchange program. So as a kid, we got to live in Paris. I believe it was about 1976 through 78, uh, we lived in Paris and um, my dad's school is actually in Versailles. But I went to a bilingual school, Colby Lang, and uh, my brother went to the American School of Paris and it was an experience that definitely shaped, you know, my passion for cooking and food.
0: It's funny, if I remember, I read the Bourdain book a while back, but if I remember correctly, he also went to Paris or at least France and got exposed yeah. to amazing food.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. So so we would go on these crazy trips and, uh, you know, we traveled all over in, you know, in these tiny little vehicles. I, I remember, you know, driving to the south of France from Paris and, you know, a tiny little uh, Fiat, but we would go to these crazy you know restaurants my my parents would seek these places out you know they were maybe one star michelin or and um you know affordable we would sit down and have these you know six course meals and you know, i was probably 10 years old at the time and my brother was maybe 13 you know and there would be these you know, three-hour events where, you know, we would uh, sit there and eat this incredible food. And, you know, one course after another, the whole thing just took forever, but it was amazing. And I remember just loving it. You know, and also on the weekends, we would go uh, and check out the markets in France and, you know, the cheeses and the produce and, uh, you know, the boulangeries and the you know, the, the butcher shops, you know, that stunk like, uh, you know, rotten meat and boars, you know, hanging, you know, from uh, from big hooks and skinned rabbits, you know, hanging on, on hooks behind the register and just being amazed and um, in awe of how they did things. You didn't, you didn't go to a grocery store. You went to each place and, and you got your cheese or you got your meat or you got your produce. I thought it was fascinating and incredible. And that definitely has a lot to do with where I am passion-wise. Was it sort of
0: a direct line? Like you knew at that age, you were going to be some part of that business or did you veer in other directions?
1: Not really. No. And I mean, there was no, uh, no thought or idea about, you know, doing that as, as a profession. Uh, as a matter of fact, I went to school for uh, forestry, uh, some resource management. Eventually I, I left college to go back to Europe I had an opportunity to go and travel. So I was probably 21 at the time and then um, traveled for about uh, eight months and then came back and realized, uh, you know, after experiencing all the food in the markets and being exposed to all that, I kind of got a sense that that's maybe where I wanted to go. Uh, So I came back, uh, I worked in restaurants, eventually went to culinary school uh, in Chicago. Can I ask where you... John, were you a good cook when you were young or not? Yeah, I, I always enjoyed it. Yeah, I was always fascinated with cooking. And I was never, you know, squeamish. I mean, I always, you know, and that was probably uh, my family, you know, they kind of instilled that sense of um, curiosity in food. So we we ate well. We like to explore food. You're an adventurous eater, kind of like Bourdain talks about. Yeah, yeah, we might yeah, my brother and I, and, you know, our family didn't shy away from from anything, really. Right. Uh, my family
0: was a, definitely a volume over quality type eating, which I think has instilled a lot yeah. of bad habits yeah. uh, to this day. But
1: yeah, you know, color, culinary school kind of sealed the deal. I, I could have probably just working in in great restaurants and worked my way up. I mean, culinary school isn't uh, a mandatory thing, although it does kind of open your eyes. I felt like I was sort of a late starter into the business because I didn't get my first job cooking until I was probably 23 years old after culinary school. And that was in Chicago or? Uh, It was actually in Evanston. It was a place called Cafe Provencal run by a woman named Leslie Rice. I mean, it it was kind of a well-known restaurant. And um, it was a French kind of bistro place, but there wasn't a lot of that going on in the time. And it they they kind of made it a name for themselves. But she uh, passed away while I was while I was working there. And uh, but the, the restaurant carried on. Uh, but then I, I don't think it la- I, they changed uh, chefs, and then it changed ownership. And I don't know how long it lasted. But but it was a great experience for me. Does it work kind of? I don't want to keep talking
0: about Bourdain, but that's like all I know about it. But does it work like that where you have a different spot on the line and you work your
1: way up and you are wicker up to sous chef and then chef? And Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, as I was saying before about not, you know, you know, going to culinary school is not mandatory. I mean, you, you certainly, you know, the idea is that you want to go to the best restaurants you possibly can find wherever that is. Obviously, you know, the big city, you're, you're probably going to have uh, more that you can choose from you know, and to, you know, start at the pantry level, you know, you're making salads, you're making desserts. Uh, eventually, you know, you get good at doing that. And next thing you know, you know, you're on the line or, you know, you're working saute or you're working on, on the grill. So the idea, and and that's what we try to do in our restaurants, is move people around because it gives us uh, a lot more flexibility. When you can plug a guy into more than just one station, you know. And at some point, you know, you you've you've done everything, and you know, there's nowhere else for you to go except, uh, you know, a sous chef position or. You know, and then at some point uh, you move your way up and you've got enough experience under your belt and you've been exposed to, you know, you've worked at a few restaurants and you've been exposed to a lot of stuff and you kind of can build a a repertoire for yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we
0: get into like you're making it to chef or even ownership, let's talk a little bit about those experiences you had in busy restaurants remind me again Were you, you were in a few different
1: cities or i started out in chicago and you know after cafe Provençal, uh i worked in the city at cafe with Provençal. was in Evanston. well first i worked after culinary school well during culinary school it was a catering job called george jewel catering after that i worked at a place called um Relish, which was on Halstead Street in uh, Lincoln Park. It was run by a guy named Ron Blazak, who's this kind of hotshot, up and coming young chef. And uh, it was kind of a trendy place, super busy. Uh, Weekends, uh, you know, were a total chaotic mess. And we had a bunch of guys that were working there um, that had been in the business for a long time a bunch of old guys and, you know, a bunch of young guys, but all. Kind of, kind of vying for uh, some, you know, recognition and uh, trying to move their way up uh, in the cooking world. It was tough, and it was busy, and it was chaotic. I mean, on a Friday night before service, you know, I remember, you know, we'd be out, you know, in the parking lot in the snow, like doing push-ups before service, <laughs> and uh, and then it would just it would launch into this crazy, chaotic disaster where we we'd be so. Busy, and there'd be so many tickets coming in, and there would be, uh, you know, one of the sous chefs uh, would be calling the tickets, and it was all by timing. We didn't have a, we didn't have a regular PLS system, you know, where the the waiters or waitresses were putting in times or, or firing first course or second course. They just kind of did it by uh, intuition. Things would get totally uh, skewed and messed up. And, and then Ron would come into the kitchen and scream and yell and, you know, <laughs> what's going on? I remember one time it was so insanely busy. Uh, Ron came in and he's yelling and screaming. Uh, and, the, and the sous chef that had all the tickets in his hand, probably 50 or 60 tickets, he hands the tickets to Ron and goes outside and, you know, starts smoking a cigarette. And then Ron looks, and, looks at us and just says, make everything on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> And uh but I mean those were you know that's that's crazy times. I mean, you know, there were guys that were fighting, you know, behind the line. You know, there was one guy, one of the one of our lead cooks was um had some sort of court court hearing hanging over his head. You know, I mean, he was doing some you know drug deals on the side and he came back and uh he uh was found uh not guilty. So, you know, we were all happy that it wasn't going to jail.
0: I feel like there's some comparisons with my job of surgery in that you're constantly problem solving. You never quite know what your night's going to look like, but I also feel like it's a very different cast of characters oh, yeah. in your, in your business than probably in my business.
1: Absolutely. No, I mean, my, my business partner, Philip Hurley, we kind of refer to our, our kitchen guys sometimes as our, uh, our band of pirates because they're sort of misfits everybody. I mean, in a way, I mean, we, you know, Madison's different. I mean, I think the city is sort of, you know, you have more of those, those guys. Uh, I think people here are a little more focused and they know what they're doing or they, you know, they have, they have a plan. It's a goofy, it's a goofy mix of people because people love what they they do. I mean, it's a hard job. You sort of fall into it, you know, for, for whatever reason. I mean, maybe you could be a dishwasher and then at some point, you know, you're, you're one of the lead line guys. It's kind of a a crazy mix of people. There's a, there's a creative side and the, there's sort of a, uh, a lawlessness about it. You know, people find their way into, into this, uh, into this field, uh, especially in the kitchen. Yeah.
0: I was really struck uh, reading about it, about <clears throat> how much of being successful is like squeezing out as many meals as possible out of the ingredients that happen to be there, you know, kind of planning in advance what you're going to cook, but then dealing with all of the the problems that are likely going to arise. Is it really like that? Like is it more planned, or is it kind of like we have this plan, but then the night goes in various different directions. You know, reading the Burdain book, like it seems like they'll get a certain cut of meat or a certain fish and they'll make their specials, But yeah. then maybe something doesn't get delivered or more people are ordering something than you expect, and you're just yeah. trying to throw things together.
1: Yeah, ah uh, yes and no. I mean, I think, there is always a situation where where something where you have to improvise. It it seems chaotic. I mean, at some point you you, you sort of understand it and you're able to uh, kind of shuck and jive and 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 make things happen. And it sort of comes off like it's like it was like it was meant to be. You, you, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of improvising.
0: Does it? Uh, this is a little bit out of order, but does it piss you guys off? Like when someone wants something really well done, or they ask the chefs for ketchup, or these kinds of things. Oh yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> For sure. Well, I mean, again, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, steer people away from going to our restaurants by telling you some <laughs> stories. <laughs> but right. Of course, these are stories that happened prior to me being an owner. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you always hear the stories of you know some guy wanting a, a well well done steak, and uh, you know the guy the you know the chef will uh, throw the steak on the ground, you know, step on <laughs> it a few times, and then throw it, throw it back on the grill. <laughs> But I've never seen that happen. No. Right, not
0: at your play. This is Yeah, in- right,
1: right, right. We warm it up by, you know, sticking it on their armpit for a while and then putting it back on the on the, on the
0: <laughs> Right. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, of course that's that's something that doesn't go well with, with the cooks, you know, special orders and, you know, essentially looking at the menu and acting like it's just a, a bunch of ingredients uh, that people can do whatever they want with. I mean, there's nothing more maddening to a chef than, you know, uh, or, or a line cook to have to deal with that. And, you know, they, they, you know, the, everybody sort of, you know, they put their heart and soul into something and they have somebody uh, not fully understand what they're trying to do. Uh, sort of from an artistic standpoint is, you know, it's sort of a, uh, you know, it's kind of insulting. Put it this way. If you, you know, if somebody orders a well-done steak, you know, you're not going to get the best cut of meat, put it that way. You're going to, you know, they're, they're going to shuffle through that, you know, those, those cuts of meat and they're going to find the absolute worst one. And that's going to be the one you're going to get. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, Is it, is
0: it generally good advice that you should, you should order the specials because that's what the chef is saying is going to be their best. uh,
1: Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, I mean, that, you know, a special is usually going to be something that's um uh that's thought out that there's passion behind it it's it's going to be something that's seasonal you know that um we're trying to use uh, a certain amount of product that we really want to use because it's in you know it's the best time to be using it so generally you know the veg is going to be you know at its peak or the piece of fish or the meat is going to be uh prepared in a way that's um goes with That dish, but I mean, the passion is going to be probably more behind like seasonal stuff, which you're not going to be able to get, uh, you know, all the time. And it's probably going to be, you know, all the best ingredients. Generally, you know, there's a lot of care taken into specials. I mean, the stuff on the menu uh, generally is, you know, I mean, these guys are cranking it out and they can do it uh, with their eyes closed at some point. Uh, But specials are are new and and cooks and chefs like to do new things. They like to be creative and they like to, you know, they're they're, they're also exposing their chefs to new things so that they're sort of opening, try to open their eyes to doing new things. I mean, specials are maybe not exactly, it gives you more creativity and freedom to do what is sort of, it's a little diversion from the menu. It sort of relates to the restaurant as a whole or the menu. And there's more freedom, so you can you can do other things. Getting back to the structure of it all, is the head chef kind of like the surgeon
0: in charge? Are they heavily involved in a busy restaurant? Are they heavily involved in all the cooking? Do they just tell everyone else what to do? Are they the ones who plan everything?
1: Yeah. I mean, these guys, yeah, they plan everything. They do the menu. I mean, these guys aren't maybe working the line anymore, but I mean – you know these guys have you know more experience, and uh, they probably logged more hours behind the line than any of those you know the, the guys that are working for them. They know what's going on, uh, but generally they're expediting, uh, and they're watching the guys cook. They're making sure that they're doing the right stuff. They're they're cultivating all the all the chefs that are working for them. They're um, you know teaching these guys how to do it, making sure that they're doing it right. You know, there's a whole. Idea of, you know, chefs being crazy and throwing things and being super temperamental. You know, I've worked in a few kitchens where, uh, chefs are, you know, they're, they're bears to work for, but you're really not going to get. A lot out of uh, yelling and screaming and throwing things and you know stuff like you see on TV and I think that's all kind of theater.
0: That's of course very similar to my own career. You know the yeah. the surgeons twenty years ago, you know, would scream at people and treat people terribly. That's not so tolerated now. But I also agree with you that it's not a way to get a team to work together.
1: Yeah, it's, exactly. You're not creating a great culture. Yeah, there can be tense moments, of course, but absolutely. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a grind, you know, and uh, it's, it's super stressful. It's so much more difficult to, um, you know, work in a, in a place that's chaotic and and hard and just exhausting in, you know, physically and mentally, but to, to work in a place where things are, are under control and there's a, there's a great culture and, and a great temperament, you know, it's like, the difference between running a marathon and running a, you know, a 5k, you know, I mean, right. I think a lot of that is just, you know, honestly, it's, it's, um, it's entertainment, you know, this stuff on TV. And, and, and honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy to think that, that that you'd actually run a business like that or anybody for that matter, you know, throwing stakes around or, you know, hitting people, you know, on the back of the head or, I mean, we, we steer so far away from that in our business that I think we wanted to, you know, as owners, uh, run a restaurant and have a great culture and stay f- as far away from that as possible because we, I experienced it and it's just not productive. You
0: know? How many years did it take you to go from kind of starting out to where you were like the head chef?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, from, from the time I went to culinary, culinary school, from the time we opened up Marigold, uh, which was 2001, I probably worked at about 11 or 12 places from Chicago uh, to L.A. You know, I, can't, I, was, I was in Chicago, right? And then I, and then I went to L.A. Uh, for about six years and worked at some great restaurants out there. Uh, one citrus, uh, which is run by a guy named, um, Michelle Richard, who just passed away. He was a kind of a quintessential French chef. Uh, he started out as a pastry chef and then, uh, worked his way into the kitchen and then ended up, uh, owning some restaurants in Los Angeles that were really successful, it kind of shaped the whole, uh French Californian, uh, cuisine. And then, um, I worked for another guy named um, Joachim Spical, who owned a place called Patina. He was pretty su- successful as well. And then came back to Chicago.
0: Uh-huh. And then what brought you to Madison? Was it an opportunity to open your own place? Or? It
1: was. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was the idea of <clears throat> leaving Chicago uh, and, and you know coming to a new place. Yeah, my business partner uh, was married and had a, had a son who was maybe two or three at the time. And I think you know, they'd been working in the city and just were looking for a change. And um, I had been in the city for a while. And, um, Madison was getting rave reviews uh, as, you know, this great place to be. Forbes gave it gave it like, you know, 10 best cities in the, in the country to live in. I knew Madison just from, you know, uh, friends and, you know, people that went to school. Uh, I knew it kind of reminded me of Evanston in a way, you know, this college town, so progressive. And um, we just kind of, came up with the idea of moving up here i had just gotten uh married and we thought like you know let's just go for it let's kind of throw caution in the wind and just see what happens so we moved up here yeah in 2000 we, we kind of cased it out and kind of mulled it over and um you know took a stroll around um the square and downtown and my business partner moved up here uh i think in june of 2000 and we came in september and then Uh, We found our space uh, for Marigold, uh, and then we opened up Marigold in two thousand and one. But it was it was kind of a we just didn't we just kind of went for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a really
0: tough business, isn't it? I mean, when I lived in New York, I remember the restaurants would come and go so quickly, and you always read about how hard it is to stay like financially solvent running a restaurant. Is it just a constant challenge, or
1: yeah? I mean. you know, restaurants, right. I mean, the margins are, are, are really thin and, uh, you know, restaurants for the most part live hand to mouth, right. I mean, uh, every, uh, every week is, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're making money and you're, and you're paying bills and, you know, it's just, that's, it's kind of a, an ongoing cycle. So it's hard to sort of gain equity, you know, or, or save money, but it, It's it's doable. I mean, you have to be successful. I mean, you have to do the volume, and you have to uh, be consistent with uh, you know making money on on a consistent level. I mean, um, if you're not, you're just going to be you know it's doable, but it's it's a struggle. And um, you know, uh, fortunately, we you know Marigold had a great. We you know we kind of started with a bang and things things really worked out for us and it was you know kind of a, a springboard you know to to do uh, sardine and gates and Barovie but
0: I feel like you may be kind of unique because you have three very different types of restaurants I would say yeah um, all of which are amazing
1: yeah well I I always you know I came from night a night place you know I never I had never you know miracle was the first restaurant I ever worked uh, breakfast at. And the idea of doing uh, a nighttime place was really, really sounded great. And I knew if we did a nighttime place, we could, we could do really well uh, just because that was kind of our, I mean, we felt, I mean, I felt more more comfortable doing that than uh, a daytime place. So, you know, the, the space came open uh, after about five years of doing Marigold. And at that point, uh, we were really jonesing to do something else, especially a nighttime place. The location came available, you know, on the lake there, Machinery Row building. And then um, it, it, it had been vacant for years and years. Uh, and then uh, it had changed ownership of the building. And the new owner wanted to do a restaurant there. And it was really just at the time when we were looking for uh, a nighttime space. And we just lucked out. Timing-wise, but that's that's kind of uh, that's our our passion. I think is that type of food and that doing doing French food and um, and we lucked out with the space. The fact that it's on the lake, it was just it just worked out. It's such a beautiful restaurant.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's it could be a piece of New York or San Francisco, uh, both in the setting and the style and. I just love going there, so I thank you for that.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Was it a
0: hit immediately, or did it take some time to to get legs?
1: It was a huge, it was a huge investment, you know, financially and and just the idea of of doing something that we really, really wanted to do. And and like you said, I mean, we wanted it to be kind of not of Madison, you know, from you know, kind of a bigger city feel. You know, it was a lot to sort of take in, but we started out, things just really took off. And we got a great review from uh, a guy named Raphael Kadushin. gave us an amazing review, and and uh, he's kind of a he's kind of a tough nut in this town, and and doesn't really give out great reviews. And he just gave us this amazing shining review, and it kind of helped us to sort of uh, kind of take off. Is
0: it exciting to you every night? Does it ever get old? I mean, I think about what I like to do for fun is kind of your job you know cuz like yeah i don't know you get to a certain it, age and your night out is going to a nice restaurant or a bar yeah,
1: it it is it is the best you know i i remember when sardine was you know probably in its first or second year and 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 like thinking to myself i can't even believe that we own this place. Like, I can't even, like, it doesn't even seem like it's ours because there's so much stuff going on, you know? I mean, we've got, you know, guys that are ordering the food. We've got bar managers who are ordering the booze. And, you know, we've got a floor manager who's taking care of our staff. It can't be possible, right, that we own this place.
0: I am curious, like, when young people, you know, talk about wanting to get into the business, do you encourage it? Do you tell them, listen, you're going to be destitute and working crazy hours for many years before? or you just still or you say if you have it in you it's just the greatest job in the world
1: I say I, I you know I would say you really have to you really have to think hard about do you really want to do this because it's 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 a big sacrifice I mean it's weekends it's it's nights uh you know the culture itself can be kind of tough and really it depends on where you're at but you know there's places that I've worked you know where it's just a it's a grind. I mean, you're, you know, you're working, you know, you're cleaning up, you're not done until two in the morning. uh, And then you're tired, you're beat, but you know, you're still wound up. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta go to the bars and kind of let let loose a little bit. And, you know, and then of course you, you know, where all the late night bars are and, you know, you end up getting home at like four in the morning and then you sleep till, you know, 11 o'clock and you get up and you do it all over again. I mean, it's no way to live, right? But it's almost like you you can't get away from that. So, you know, I think about my kids going into the biz, which which I, I don't know. I would I wouldn't I wouldn't really uh, want them to do that. But I think if you're passionate about it, and uh, you know, the end result is fantastic. I mean, we're we're in a in a position right now where uh, we have the best of both worlds. We get to do the menu. You know, we get to run these these great restaurants. We're not. Uh, working as hard as we used to. And we have these places that are up and running and are doing really well. In that sense, I mean, the end result is amazing. I mean, it couldn't be better. I mean, we're totally just living the dream right now. So, I mean, I couldn't discourage anyone from from doing that. But there, but, it, but it's a big sacrifice. It's a lot of work and, and, and not a lot of pay, but it's fun. It's fun. And the camaraderie is great. And, you know, the culture is great if you if you can get out of that killing yourself, you know, in and, and the first couple of years that you're doing it not being enticed by the lifestyle and somehow, you know, growing up a little bit and kind of steering away from that and focusing, following your dream, you know, of, of, you know, one day opening your own place, then it's a great life. And I think it keeps you young. And, you know, there's there's so many different people that you're interacting with. So many young people, uh, so many different types of people. It just is it's joyful. It's it's different. It's you know it's you know if there's somebody out there who needs to stay busy, needs to work with their hands, you know can't sit down, you know can't, can't sit still, or would never want to work in an office uh, or in that type of uh, environment. You know it sort of feeds your creative. Uh, mind as well. So,
0: I love that answer, and I, I like that you use the word joyful. I really do see a lot of similarities with my own career. You sacrifice a lot. The timing can be really tough. You you know you can't just shut it off when it's done, but there can be incredible satisfaction and in, yeah, you know if you can get to the other side and then also working with your colleagues who become like your brothers and sisters, you know, your, your children, I suppose, at some point, but
1: yeah. And you're doing good work, right? I mean, you're, you're contributing to, you know, the fabric of your community and um, you know, you're making people happy and that's, that feels good. And that's, you know, there's no shame in, in that whatsoever. And um, you're creating joy. Yeah. I didn't want to spend the whole time talking
0: about COVID, but I feel like I need to bring it up. So I know how hard, this pandemic has been on the restaurant community across the country. I guess one: Are you guys going to get all your places through it? And then two: Is this going to change the landscape massively across the country and how restaurants look?
1: Yeah, well, I think so. I think it will. I think it will change, and, and we will we will survive. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's there's a lot. I mean, everybody's suffering, right? And um, you can't survive on uh, you know doing twenty five percent. Uh, occupancy. You can't survive on doing takeout when, you know, you weren't really anticipating that ever, you know, it wasn't part of the business plan. You know, I feel like there's a certain amount of goodwill, you know, that comes out of this. And if you don't have that, you know, you're, you're going to really struggle and you may not make it as far as how things will change in restaurants. You know, there will probably be a lot of restaurants that don't make it. So there may be fewer restaurants, you know, I think restaurants, their mindset will change. It'll be more geared towards survival and, you know, from having less staff, uh, smaller menus, um, you know, sort of condensing things so that you can get, uh, you can squeeze more out of, uh, you know, out of your place. It's been a great opportunity for us to be able to look at things and do things differently. Yeah. I mean, it'll change the landscape I and mean, we'll probably do more takeout then we did over at, at Gates of Brovy, which is probably a good thing. There'll probably be more a like lot online sort of ordering which will never go away. People will be probably really focused on how to have a covid f- sort of covid proof restaurant if anybody's going to reopen. So, you know, outdoor seating will be will be big and you know the ability to do takeout will be something that people will be thinking before they open a restaurant and how they can have a place ergonomically that works for that.
0: I like the idea of the the outdoor stuff. Maybe things will look a little more like some of Europe and Italy where they have all those. Well, that'd be great. Piazzas and you sit outside. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Heat lamps will be a hot commodity. <laughs> yeah. That's a good business to invest in.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you, I just, uh, this has been a ton of fun. And um, I do want to thank you because I just think all three of your restaurants are wonderful you know, Gates and Brovi is, is our neighborhood hangout. Yeah. Sardine is like our treat, and of course, marigolds is just delicious. So,
1: oh, thank you so much, and and thanks, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's been fun. And if you ever want to open another restaurant, uh, I'm in. Right. <laughs> we do maybe like a comedy
1: club restaurant <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I'll host it. (laughs) We'll keep that in mind. Yeah, it'll have to be an outdoor comedy club, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: We're an online. All right, John, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and good luck. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to grand rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library, for a wide range of medical education resources, at videos.med.whisk.edu, give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at whisk surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just thirty minutes ago. You are very welcome.